with Scott Allen. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. I am your host, Scott J. Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. Now, I am a professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. In addition, I'm a husband and father of three teens. Now, this is a family endeavor. Will played the intro, Kate voiced the intro, and who knows, you may hear from Emily a little later. I'm also an author, entrepreneur, speaker, and co-founder of the Collegiate Leadership Competition. I love to travel, explore new places with family, and learn from others. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership and followership, if we're honest. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. I am proud to share a few updates. According to Listen Notes, Phronesis is listed as among the top 3% of podcasts in the world because of you. So thank you. In addition, the podcast has two sponsors. First, Phronesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. My second sponsor is the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. At Bowler, we offer several advanced degrees and MBAs, and I'm confident that there's one that will fit your location, interests, and timeline. In fact, our online MBA is ranked as the number one in Ohio and number nine in the United States. We offer international study tours, a contemporary and forward-looking curriculum, and access to senior leaders and flagship organizations. Learn more at business.jcu.edu. You can find links to both sponsors in the show notes. Now, if you like what we're up to, please hit subscribe so you can stay current as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others, friends, colleagues, leaders, teams, students, and others you think will benefit. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. Uh, We have three very, very special guests today, excited for this conversation I am not going to do long bios in this intro because I want as much time as possible for you all to hear the conversation. Their longer bios will be in the show notes. We have George Papandreou, former prime minister of Greece, 2009 to 2011. Ron Heifetz, who is a senior lecturer in public leadership, founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at Harvard Kennedy School at Harvard University. And we have Cynthia Cherry, President and CEO of the International Leadership Association. Just an incredible group. Sin, this was your idea, this conversation. So I want to turn it over to you to maybe set the stage, and then we can jump in to this, what's going to be fascinating conversation. Well, thank you, Scott. And as you know, this is a continuation of a conversation we had at the Global Leadership Conference a few years back. And it is an honor to bring back together former Prime Minister Papadreou, who we bestowed with the ILA Distinguished Leadership Award, along with Professor Ron Heifetz, who is one of our Lifetime Achievement Award recipients at the ILA. And we brought the two of them together to have a conversation, thinking having these two global thought leaders talking about leadership issues of today and tomorrow was of such great benefit to all leaders and the leadership profession. So I am pleased that we are able to get George and Ron back together to continue this conversation. Well, George, I was saying before we started that my family had just a magical 10 days in Greece this summer. And it was, whether it's the combination of just the incredible cuisine, the environment, the history, uh, the birthplace of democracy. And I think that's where we're going to hone in some of our conversation today. And so, Ron, as you think about democracy and as you think about the world and as you think about current affairs and the state of things, that's where we're going to really focus our conversation today is democracy. I think that we sometimes oversimplify democracy as a system of elections. But democracy is really a culture of shared responsibility and a sense of collective engagement with collective problems. And without that sense of citizenship, elections easily become co-opted by either demagogues or simply oligarchic regimes of power that can control the media and other 
means of public information. The development of citizenship and the development of a shared sense of we're in this together, even though we might deeply disagree on what needs to be done, is an ongoing process and requires a lot of effort in politics, I think, to be engaging and mobilizing the increasing understanding of citizens for the world they're living in and the trade-offs they need to make and the departures from tradition that sometimes are necessary. And that's an ongoing process. Every politician is limited by his or her latitude in regard to the kinds of policies they can engage in. They're limited by the degree to which the constituents can apprehend or comprehend why that might be needed. And those boundary conditions of constituents' attitudes are constraining unless the politician engages citizens in understanding why it's important to stretch the range of options that the politician then has to work with. So I think that George Papandreou has done an extraordinary job of realizing that the hardest problems societies face require a sustained effort in citizen engagement and mobilization and education. And I, I think the earlier moments in his career as foreign minister in the late 1990s, when he we sat together on an, on an island at a, his first symposium in 1998, the summer of 1998, and just five miles across, you could see Turkey from the island of Simi. And we were talking about the, indeed, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and the, the efforts there to, to make peace. It was during the Oslo period. We looked across to Turkey and I said, well, George, you know, how about Turkey? You know, Greek Turkey, like, be, let's put the Crusades to rest. And what better way to do it than to strengthen relations with Turkey and Turkey with, with Europe and to bridge the, the Christian world with the Muslim world. And I remember sitting on a balcony overlooking Turkey, and I think one of the cabinet ministers was there as well. I think the minister of the Aegean, as I recall, and she was horrified at the thought that Greece would ever reach sort of a hand of peace towards Turkey. But George said, well, you know, I, I think that's going to be really important to do. And I said to him, you know, this will either make your political career or destroy your political career. Because at the time, as I recall, about 98% of the population of, of Greece was sharply antagonistic towards any kind of peace effort or bridge building with Turkey for historical reasons that George can describe better than I can. And George took that risk. It was an extraordinary risk that was manifest not only throughout the population, but in the media, which excoriated him when he began to move in this direction, but also even within the cabinet, because there were members of the cabinet, his lateral colleagues, who were sharply antagonistic, not only the minister of the Aegean. And that meant that the prime minister, you know, had this conflict and what was going to be politic for him to do. So George had an extremely risky path he chose. And I think it would be terrific to, as an example of how democracy actually worked, not just in the halls of government, but actually in the streets where people live, how George paid attention to that right from the start. And then if I could ask George, if you could begin to educate us on, on what you did. <laughs> that is really, it could be enormously inspiring and illuminating. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ron. First of all, thank you, Scott, for bringing us together. And Cynthia, too, So all of your work you're doing with the uh, International Leadership Association. Ron has been a, not only a good friend, but has been a mentor and truly, truly helpful in many of these crises that I've gone through in different types, different forms and, and times in my uh, political life but also a personal friend. And I just thank you, Ron, for all the, all the help. And I think we're, we're still continuing this, this conversation and back and forth and trying to see how we can better the world and see how leadership can be truly uh, one that is transformative, transformative, but also brings certain values, which, of course, are encompassed, of course, in our, in our democratic uh, practices and, and societies, as I believe, human rights and more humane societies, more just societies. I don't want to get into the deeper ideas around democracy, but I will at some point, maybe because I think they're important. As we are facing today challenges as to where democracy is going, I think going back to, you mentioned Scott being in Greece, is useful, even though ancient Athens had its problems. They had slaves. Women did not vote. We still have some remnants of these problems and sometimes very, very deep in our societies. 
But what I felt with Turkey was that, first of all, crossing boundaries, not only in politics, but in life, we, we often are constrained within our boundaries, whether it's in our family or even the way we think, uh, our community, our nation. And we think within those terms, and that gives us a certain point of view and way we approach things. We can move out of these boundaries and, and open up. Then you can sometimes see many more possibilities of what can, can be done and imagine a better future, and which I think is basically what uh, democracy has given us, the possibility to imagine a better future collectively. What we had with Greece and Turkey, we had a, a history, we still the same history is there, but there was a history of animosity, wars, occupations. When I took over as foreign minister, I was facing a deep crisis because there was a PKK leader, that is the Kurdish leader, who had come to Greece, wanted to go to South Africa, was picked up in Kenya, and Greece was then seen as the sort of harboring the terrorist of, you know, who was from the neighboring country. So I then was appointed minister to deal with the crisis, and we were almost at a war period. I decided that, okay, we need to take the risk to really start talking with each other. I got a sort of an ultimatum from my counterpart, but I decided that rather than reject an ultimatum, sit down and talk. And uh, I sent back a letter which said, okay, let's sit down and discuss these issues. Luckily, I found something from the other side which was open to this, Ismail Chem, my, my counterpart. And I think what, what was important that we started to think of a, a different context, how a conflict which had these historical roots with uh, all kinds of victims and expulsions and millions of Greeks that had been kicked out of, of Turkey. And then we had a population exchange about a century ago, but still families remember this. Changing that conflict into from a Greek-Turkish conflict into how do we integrate Turkey into a wider family of the European Union? And I think that's very important in leadership. Can you change the framework within which you see a problem or a conflict? So then it didn't become a problem between Greece and Turkey. It became an issue of integrating Turkey into the European Union, a common family. But the common family was also a family of common values. I think one of the basic things of democracy is, even though there may be differences, at least that we should have in democracies, there are certain basic common values we all share. Now, when that starts breaking apart, then you have polarization and problems in your democracies. But in a European Union, we have the idea that, yes, we have common values. And one of the basis is the democratic values, human rights, respect, dignity of each human being, a sense of social equality, minority rights, and so on, and respect of each other's uh, borders and independence. That also meant that the idea was not simply to become a member of the European Union, but it was a transformation of Turkey where Greece would be helping its neighbor in transforming into a more modern European country, as we had gone through this process too, and we still are. I mean, I think there's this democracy is a work under construction. So this was a very different context within which we could see, say, we could say, yes, we do have our problems. We do have a problem on Cyprus. We do have some issues on borders on basically the continental shelf, difficult issues. But here we have a much wider framework of how we can work together. So that was the first thing I think that gave a sense of inspiration that Okay, completely diff changed the whole context of, of a conflict. I think secondly, what was really beyond reframing the issue is getting people involved. So that's also a bit of, if you, if you like, what Ron might call, you know, bringing the responsibility to the stakeholders so that the leader is not just simply, I have the solution, I am the solution, you know, no, we are together going to look for the solution and solve these problems and discuss them and, and take the burden of responsibility all upon us. Much more difficult way of, of, of leading, but a much more effective in the end. And I think much more much more ethical also in the end, much more more democratic. So we had at some point during this beginning of this dialogue with, with Turkey, we had this huge earthquake in Turkey. I decided that we have to help Turkey. As a foreign minister, I called on the Greek people. I said, let's help them. They may be 
our traditional enemies, but in the end, they're human beings like all of us. Let's show our humanity. I didn't know what the resp- response would be. I didn't know if there would be a real reaction, as, as Ron had said, there was a lot of animosity towards Turkey, or that people respond positively. And actually, there was such a response. People went out, they got clothes, they gave blood. After a few days, the hospitals called me and said, can you call people off? We don't have, we, we can't, we can't take any more blood. There's so much, such a response. We had our special team going and one of these Greek firemen was able to pull out a young Turkish boy alive, about three years old, from the rubble. And the whole Turkish newspapers the next day said, thank you, Greece, in Greek. So this changed the whole uh, mood. But then we started working with my counterpart and I said, okay, how do we build on this mood? How do we create it to, to, to really sort of make it where people really feel it? We had an earthquake a month later. The Turks came to help us. And then we started having NGOs, so women's groups, basketball teams, football teams, the um, business community, local government, people-to-people diplomacy, basically. So a whole movement of people's diplomacy created an, sort of a very, very grassroots basis for changing the whole sense of our relationship. So that was, in a way, democratizing these international problems. We usually think of foreign policy as something where the foreign minister meets with the other foreign minister, the prime minister meets with the other prime minister. They sit down in closed, under, you know, closed door rooms, decide, and then they make the policy. Actually, I believe that we really need to engage our societies much more and sort of democratize for foreign policy in a way where people take on responsibility for this. I won't want to, don't want to get into the Ukraine-Russian or, or Gaza war right now, but I mean, when I used to go to um, Israel and I also meet with, in Ramallah with the Palestinian leadership, the first, first group I would meet before I met the officials were the women's group. And there were women from Israel, women from Palestine. They would sit together, they would discuss, and they came up with ideas and solutions which were much more profound, much more realistic also, and much more hopeful than we would get sometimes from the officials. So society itself, if you give it the chance and a sense of being part of this process, they can come up with even many much more bold ideas as far as dealing with very, very complicated issues. I can go on, but I think this is, this is enough for the moment. I just was wondering, if, George, if you could say something, uh, how you worked the messaging with the press. You know, I remember there was a moment where you were dancing, a, a Greek dance with the Ismail Cem, the Turkish foreign minister, you know, and, and the way that made the news. Or, and, and also, what was the time period? Like, what was the arc of time that you gave it to engage in this change? That's the second question. And a, a third is, can you say something to whatever extent you can about the internal politics in terms of managing your, your prime minister and, and maintaining enough support so that you could take these risks, even though this was politically treacherous for your party, you know, uh, in government. And then, yeah, that, that, that would be terrific if you could speak a bit to That's those. three, Ron. We'll stick with the three. <laughs> right. Thanks. Well, I, I think having the support of your superior in this, in this case, who was the prime minister, is important. Even though the risks that were taken were basically risks I would take, but of course he was my superior, so he would also be responsible for my, my actions. So I did have close cooperation and made sure that I was working close with his team so they could understand what I was thinking of doing. Secondly, and that was important, and I think if I did not have that support, uh, it wasn't always public, but I had this sort of green light, that would be more difficult. And of course, there were rumbles in the, in the, in the, in the government from other ministers, what is he doing and why is he doing this? And of course, it was, it was very difficult. But what we decided with Ismail Chem is, okay, we have a, we have a problem of trust between each other, between these two countries. We cannot sort of delve into the deep, deep, difficult issues, which have for, for years have been, you know, pounding us and we have different, different approaches. Let's see how we can build the trust. So one was, of course, this people diplomacy, but the second was, 
can we start building measures in areas where we actually have common interests? Again, reframing in a way, but saying, oh, we do have these problems. We're not going to hide them. Let's recognize that we disagree, but let's find the areas where we actually do agree. And we actually, there were many, many areas where we actually agree. So for 40 years, we had not had one accord with Turkey, one agreement on any issue, except for one, which was sort of a military one, not so that, so that people could go and have have their tourist uh, tourist islands, you know, and and not have the jets flying over from both sides. Other than that, there was no accord, no no agreement. So we sat down. We said, okay, what what areas? Tourism, energy, agriculture, you know, pandemics. Well, at that at that time, it was more more on diseases in the in the area of agriculture. Business. How about investment? How about trade? So we we expanded and slowly expanded, and we got into some more difficult areas like demining on the borders, which we did. And then as these grew and we started to sign these, people started saying, well, something's happening here. You know, something is actually moving an issue on immigration and how dealing with the border problem, which many countries now have. This was a a way to build a trust. But then seeing this, we said, we started working together and saying, okay, this will take some time, but what else can we do to show that actually Greece and Turkey working together have great potential. So taking a little bit out of context, if you could see a future Israel and a future Palestine in living in peace together, what if they took initiatives, global initiatives together? Wouldn't that be a really powerful statement? So we actually started thinking, what do we do? How can we take initiatives? So one was, for example, we had the Olympic Games coming up in, in Athens. We said, okay, why don't we revive the idea of the Olympic truce, which is the basic idea of the Olympics, to, to bring peace for a period of time during the Olympics, at least, where people did not have. So we had a statement, which I am and my counterpart, my Turkish counterpart, Ismail Chim, wrote up and signed, first signed, and we went around the world getting all kinds of leaders to sign it. So we had Bill Clinton sign it. We had the Chinese foreign minister sign it. We had Simon Perez sign it. We had Yasser Arafat sign it. We had Nelson Mandela sign it. We had the Iranian foreign minister sign it. We had a slew of people signing it. This is one thing to show that they're working together. We can actually have quite a, quite an impact. Then there was a war in the Balkans, Kosovo War. There was a lot on CNN and BBC saying Greece and Turkey were one of the reasons why we, we had to intervene because Greece and Turkey would fight over Kosovo. So I actually called up my counterpart and said, are we going to fight over Kosovo? He said, no. I said, let's show that we can work together for peace in the region. So we actually started working together on humanitarian aid and so on. We then at some point went together to visit Ariel Sharon and Yasser Arafat during a very critical period. Ariel Sharon had just decided to he would hand over Gaza and leave, leave Gaza where the Israeli troops would leave. And it was quite a whole difficult, tense time. So all this was a way to build up trust and then to finally sit down and say, okay, now let's start working on the more difficult issues. How are we going to solve Cyprus? How are we going to solve the continental shelf? We finally didn't. I think one of the reasons was that governments changed. You know, I left government, other governments came in Greece, in Cyprus, in Turkey. And I think that also changes often. You have a historical moment, a historical window. You don't always uh, get what you have. But what it did show is that actually there is great potential to move forward. Now, inside Greece, we started with, as as Ron said, 90% being very skeptical about any kind of contact with Turkey. And by the time I had basically ended my my time as foreign minister before the elections, 70% of the Greek population were in favor of the policy. So the policy really switched from completely to negative to highly positive from, from that point of view. So these are some of the things I think that we were able to do. And as I said, getting, being informing people, getting people involved, understanding the issues, being honest. You know, usually there was this sort of a fear of secret diplomacy. So what we would do with Ismail Chim, we would sit in a hallway in a, in a hotel and across the hallway, we would have all the journalists. So they could actually see us. They didn't hear what we we're saying, but they could actually see us sitting there talking for an hour, for two hours, and so on. And so we tried to be as transparent as possible. 
without creating a sense that some secret thing is happening, some conspiracy, something is be, be done, being done behind the backs of, of our citizens. And I think that also helped a lot in, in, in creating a, a much more of a sense of trust that there's something really going on here, something positive going on here. I'm hearing things like a wider framework, the possibility to imagine a different context, building trust and, and focusing on those commonalities. Ron, what are you hearing or what would, how would you like to follow up? There's so much more to learn from you, George, about that piece of history. But also, if we just fast forward a few years, when you became prime minister, right in the middle of the global financial crisis. But perhaps there's just one last question I have about the era of your diplomacy, which is one of the huge changes that you made as from a policy point of view is that rather than be the, the blocker or the veto of Turkish candidacy to the European Union, you reversed 180 degrees and became a champion of Turkey's admission into the European Union. And having done so, it seems that the hidden negative voices then were exposed because they couldn't hide behind, you know, Greece's uh, intransigent attitude before. Can you say something then about, about that effort and how did it go south? You know, what, what happened to it that within the time period you had to work with it, it became stalled in a sense? Or, or, or another way of putting it is what were the attitudinal or adaptive challenges to the minds and hearts of people in Europe that would be required in order to accept Turkey as a member of its union? The European Union then was going through a major change. We had the fall of the Berlin Wall, but with that, the opening up to Central and Eastern Europe, and therefore the prospect of bringing in 10 new countries. So it would be the Central Eastern Europe plus Malta and Cyprus. This was a great hope. And there was a great sense that democracy was coming to the world. It, it wasn't exactly the end of history, but it was certainly a huge moment, a huge change, and a positive one. And this positive spirit was something which we could build on. And Greece was there saying, no, we're going to veto Turkey because we have problems with Cyprus, because they've occupied Cyprus, because they're not solving the continental shelf, they're... they're talking about our islands as not being Greek and so on. So we said we have to keep a veto on them. So what we decided to do at some point is said, okay, let's not veto them. Let's bring them in, into a process, which that process will actually lead up to them becoming a member of the European Union. But that really meant huge changes. It's basically, it's not like you just sort of apply for membership, you become part of the member of the club, but there's certain prerequisites, very important. And part of them are democracy, part of them are, you know, military doesn't have a role in, in politics, the respect of human rights, respect of your neighbor and the territorial integrity of each, of each country, and solving peacefully your issues with your neighbor. So actually, what we said is, this is a context within which Changing this, the, the framework, the whole idea, this is a context within which actually we might be able to solve our problems, the European prospect. And we came very close to it. I think what happened was, as I said, governments changed. So then that momentum was lost. But then what happened was in Europe, we had the expansion and there was a bit of a fatigue of we becoming very big, much more cumbersome in, de in decision making. Then we had a number of crises, which then came up later, financial crisis in 2008, but that dragged on. So people started feeling the burden of, okay, how are we going to bring in another country, which means money that will have to be going to agricultural policy or whatever policies the European Union does subsidize. But that also came in, what came in was this idea, well, what about the Muslim world? Because Turkey is a Muslim country, which previously had, was discussed, but everybody had, well, everybody, the, the majority in, in, in Europe were saying, listen, democracy is not something, you know, related to uh, one religion or one specific religion. Democracy should be and is a universal concept. So actually bringing in Turkey would be a real proof that democracy 
is not linked to, let's say, the Christian world or whatever other world one might have. And, and basically sort of separating the religious issue, because what we actually see is we see religious extremism in all religions, which have can undermine democracy. So it really has no, the idea that one religion or another is, is, is counter to, to democracy, I think, is, is, is a fallacy. But I think it also is what you said, Ron, putting to rest the uh, Crusades, which was in, in many ways would bringing in. But it would be, a, would be, I think Turkey wanted to play this role also. And then you had conservative leaders in, in the European Union starting to say, we don't want Turkey. We don't want a Muslim world, the Muslim world in, a, in, our, in our countries. We don't. And this, of course, then was built up. A lot of demagogues played on this. We then had the uh, refugee crisis, where more people started playing on this because they were from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Iraq. That all sort of played in with this, with the financial problems and the my refugee problems. All it played into this demagogic rhetoric, which we are dealing with now in Europe, and it's a, it is a very major problem because it is undermining our sense of first community as a European community, but also our democratic principles as people are. These demagogues are saying, yeah, what we need is being tough, being authoritarian. They don't say it that way, but that's what basically they mean. Cracking down, you know, bringing more surveillance. We don't need really rule of law. We need strong police. We need, you know, we need a strong leader. These kinds of things, which are, of course, have created more problems. And that has, and then at the same time, you have this in Turkey too. You have Erdogan, who became as sort of a reformer and now has become a much more autocratic, centralized sort of power and has therefore moved away from these democratic principles. So he has, Turkey has a huge long way to go to make these, to go back to where it was, but also to make new reforms. Now there is in Turkey uh, a large number of people, I would say almost half the population, if not more, who do want to become part of Europe, do want this European path. And again, there's a large group in the European Union, citizens who do see Turkey at, at some point to be either a member or very close to the European Union. And now that we've had uh, a new possibility of new members like Ukraine, Moldova, and Georgia, and of course the Western Balkans, Turkey, of course, is then, it comes up as another, as another question. I have been a supporter, but it does mean both sides to rethink this relationship and give it new impetus. Perhaps we could move Lord, uh, it's so rich hearing you speak and, and inspiring too because of your the values that you bring and along with a lot of practical wisdom. Tell us a little bit about the challenge to democracy that you experienced during the global financial crisis when people were in a panic. In a way, the as I remember it from looking over your shoulder during those years, you came into power, I think it was in November of 2009, the global financial crisis was already underway and you came into government and in a way discovered that the previous government had been deceiving Europe in regard to its budget and its level of debt. And certainly the public was not prepared to understand that the government was running a much larger deficit or much carried much larger debt than it was supposed to be carrying. And some of the services that were being purchased were uh, unsustainable given the uh, revenue streams of the government. So you came into power, as I recall, and you had this fabulous finance minister, a wonderful man, George Papa Constantino, as I recall. And both of you really committed to transparency and, and enormously honest. And uh, I recall him coming into the Ministry of Finance and and then people reporting on what's the status of our budget. You know, let's take a look at the books. And and as people began to have a little more courage and as he would call people, well, tell me more. Well, wait a second. What's what's that really about? People began to reveal that, well, the, the budget deficit um, or I can't recall exactly the ratios, but anyway, it was supposed to be less than three percent. No, it's really. 5%. No, no, the next day. No, it's really 6%. No. And, and over a two week period, slowly discovering that it was more like 12 or, uh, of course, you recall the numbers and I don't. But the point is that it was that finally uh, became 15.6%. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so now, you know, you believe in transparency and to believe, to believe in 
public's knowing what's happening and and having a, a trustworthy relationship with everybody, knowing that your predecessor in the uh, the previous government, which was not from your party, had been deceiving the lenders and the lending countries for many, many years. What did you do? So, you know, you get this information that, in a sense, I started my career as a doctor. You know, you get this information that the pa- patient's got a tough problem. And the patient doesn't really want you to walk into the room and say that. You know, people want to hear that they're okay, but they weren't okay. And nobody wanted to hear it. You know, certainly the Deutsche Bank and, and the governments, the lending banks in Europe didn't want to hear it. The public didn't want to hear it. But here you were. So tell, tell us how you wrestled with that moment as a democratic leader. I think it's emblematic of the types of crises our leaders face today, which can start at home or can be start somewhere else, but they have a global impact. So the, the financial crisis started in Wall Street. There was great mistrust because of that financial crisis in the financial system. That mistrust at some point started infecting, if you like, sort of like a pandemic, the the country's own debt structure. Actually, the first country that was was hit by financial markets worrying for a possible default or having a bankruptcy was Dubai. And the Emirates then bailed them out immediately, and that was quiet. So a few weeks later, they started targeting Greece because of this uh, budgetary uh, discrepancy. It was huge. And it wasn't just the numbers. It was a sense then... What was created was a sense of mistrust. So we had a huge deficit. We had a trade deficit also, but I think the worst deficit was the deficit of trust. And so I basically had to deal with the deficit of trust, both within the European Union and then globally. And of course, then there was a sort of a shock in the, in the Greek society. And as you said, and as you, you have written and in, in spoken, spoken about in, in many of your lectures, the dealing with the reality of whether it's an ailment or a crisis and so on, people so often look for easy solutions, which are less painful, or they seem to be less painful because they are easy solutions. So not, I had to reveal what was what was happening, partly because I could not have hidden it anyway, partly because I revealing it was giving me an opportunity to actually make changes in Greece. And thirdly, had I not been on show, I would have not been able to build trust because sooner or later they would have found out that I was trying to hide the numbers. But it was a shock to all of us. But then what I basically said is, okay, this is a crisis. Let us use it in the best of ways. And here, of course, obviously leaders have to understand what the nature of the crisis is. And I think there is, this is another, another issue. And they sometimes don't want to understand the nature of the crisis because it can mean very, very big changes that are needed to, 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 be, to be done. So I was basically saying even before I took on government that either we, that was our slogan, either we change or we sink. So we were sinking there. And I was seeing that, okay, this is, this is not really that we overspent, but there was a whole system of very clientelistic politics, quite a bit of corruption, mismanagement, which where we lost a lot of money. Money was, and so money would be coming in, we could borrow as being part of the euro, but it was spent in, in a very bad way, from corruption to simply bad management. So I was saying, okay, this, so the core problem is to build a different type of governance, which more transparency, fight corruption, and you know, not let these oligarchs capture our politics, you know, and, and so on, and really make government work for the people. That is basically what I also believe is very much what democracy needs. And I think we have this as a major problem. Greece may be one, but in other many countries around the world, there is a sense that government is captured by interests, whether it's lobbies, whether it's big companies, whether it's digital platforms, whether it's oligarchs, whatever. There is a sense that government, media, social media, justice, sometimes crony capitalism, we have government capture. That sense is what I was was fighting. That was what I had to deal with, changing changing that. So I brought in things like complete transparency and where money went, electronic prescriptions in, in, in medical in the medical. So we cut the prices of medicine by half, by fifty percent, which were burdening our social security 
system. That was as much as we make in property taxes in all of Greece, the cuts we made. And that was simply by bringing in transparency. So I was fighting for this. Now, I had to also, so I was dealing with that. A lot of people in Greece were seeing this as positive, but then also there were painful things I had to do, which were hurting people because we didn't have enough money to actually pay salaries. So we had to cut salaries and and that was that was very painful and pensions. Now the European Union, of course, we were in this family, we have this common currency. So all of a sudden the European Union is dealing with one country that's almost ready for bankruptcy and they have no bailout clause. They have no as a matter of fact, there is a clause which says where the European Union is not allowed to bail out any country, not allowed to help any country. You just have to stick to the rule of three percent. And if it doesn't go well, well, that's your problem. However, this was shaking the whole system. However, the, the reaction of, of the leaders of most of the leaders in the European Union was, okay, this is a Greek problem. This is not our problem. So that was an easy scapegoat way. And as a matter of fact, I think this led also to a buildup of the sort of xenophobia that we have today in, in Europe, because it was sort of like the Greeks are lazy, the Greeks don't work, the Greeks are just, you know, just Zorba and Uzo and things like that. I looked at the OECD statistics, Greeks work more hours than any other European. But the rhetoric that was the narrative was there was very easy for many leaders. This is a Greek problem. And that also meant that Europe didn't have to deal with the issue. They didn't have to think of their own architecture, or we didn't have to, as Europeans, think of our architecture of the euro, which is a common currency with very different economies, with very different bank systems, and so on. Finally, we pushed through changes, and I pushed through changes, and changes were made, but they took a long time. And during that time, there were lots of crises, and there was much pressure for us just to cut, cut, cut. When I was saying, it's not the wages, it's partly the wages, but it's the deeper problems of the structures, the institutions, which would need to change. So I had two things to do. I was had to, to cut because that was what they were demanding if they were going to lend me because I couldn't borrow from the markets because they were just too expensive. At the same time, I had to make all these institutional changes. The two combined was were very painful for Greece and very painful for, for our citizens. And that's where we started getting what you said, Ron, again, the reactions. We don't like the messenger. We don't like the message. We don't like the messenger. And also what I felt was that there was it was very easy to look for another doctor. As you would say, Ron, you know, you go to the doctor, not so good news. Maybe I go to another doctor. Maybe I get a different diagnosis and I don't have to deal with the, the real issue there. So social media started playing on this. And I, I, I think one thing I learned from that is that, I mean, now we know it, but I had been very involved with using technology for politics and informing people and so on. But the power of social media and the power of fake news was something I hadn't really dealt with that how quickly it spreads and how quickly it spreads around the world, not, not, just in, not just in Greece. There would be any rumor of default and it would go, it would go around the world and the spreads of Greek bonds would go up. But in, inside our society, there were people that would say, you know, we can, we can get help if the Saudi Arabians come or the Russians come and they buy up our debt or the Chinese come and buy up our debt. We don't have to do all this painful stuff. And I thought, of course, nobody believes that, but actually a lot of people did. So the the idea that, so you are dealing with a multiple number of stakeholders and you see how people sort of can easily be carried away. But how do you, how do you deal with that as a leader? And I think what I should have done more, but I was dealing with the crisis this is one of the problems. You have, a, you have to talk to everyone everywhere in Europe, around the world, US, I went to meet Obama, you know, Chinese prime minister, anybody who had funds anywhere around the world. So yeah, I was I was preoccupied time-wise in dealing with the daily crisis. I think I needed to put, spend more time sitting down with citizens, talking on television, on social media, not just in the parliament, in the villages, in the neighborhoods, getting people to understand what this crisis was all about and where it will go. However, things were not, even even then, would not have been completely in my hands because we had this troika, which was telling you, what to do. So here I am fighting for democracy, fighting for actually citizen participation. I even created what we call wiki laws where no legislation would be going through parliament without having a wide deliberation through the internet. But then of course, when we had a troika on our, on our shoulder or on our, on our head, 
we really didn't have much space for all this democratic deliberation. I think this is one of the problems we have in our crisis today. They can be so fast, so hard-hitting, so immediate where our democratic processes, we don't allow for the space for our democratic processes to really converse, discuss, and so on. And then and the crisis hits, and then you just have to take some, some measures. So I think this is one of, our, one, of our, one of the dilemmas we have. I mean, as I recall, George, uh, initially your popu- popularity was like, you know, 80%, very, very high. You had a, a large majority in the parliament, which was unusual. You didn't have a coalition government. Your party was in control. But after a year and a half of this pain, you know, obviously politicians who used to go into the t- local taverna or the market expecting to be applauded or, or people would be greeting them with respect, uh, shaking their hands, taking photographs. A year and a half later, as the crisis began to be more and more painful, your own party politicians would be, sometimes they would avoid going into the taverna because people would get angry, they would yell. Sometimes there were even threats, they were endangered. And that began to pull apart the, the, the sort of the unity of your party. So one of the one of, as I recall, one of the devices you wanted to use was a referendum. You know, do we want yes. to stay in the European Union and to try to get the public engaged in this very difficult trade-off? Do we want to stay in the European Union and continue to be Europeans, continue to use the euro as our currency, but that's going to require that we accept some of this painful medicine that's being dished out by what you're calling the troikos, but primarily the, you know, the various sources of European power and, and financial uh, resource. And to, 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 to use the referendum as a public engagement, public choice making, public responsibility taking measure. And, and as I, I seem to recall, correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Europeans, the key Europeans, you know, the French president and uh, others were very strongly resistant to the idea that you were going to, to give the public, the, the democracy, a chance to work for fear that, you know, that the public would, would go the wrong way. So can you just say a little bit about that, how you felt like it, your, your hands were tied from even trying to get democracy to work more properly, at least in that last stage of... Uh, of Absolutely. Of yeah, that's a very important point. And I, having talked with others with experience, I had realized that you have to take the difficult measures for the very beginning, which I did. But then there was a long period of, of dallying from the European Union. And I think one of the reasons was that there was a sense that, you know, Greece has to be punished. It's not just let's solve it, but because we can solve it quickly. As a matter of fact, I remember talking to Volcker, former head of the Fed in the U.S. And he said, you know, in the U.S., we would solve the problem in two or three days and then talk about the moral, moral hazards or whatever of solving it later on, but we would solve it. We would deal with it. And there were ways to deal with it, like quickly tell the markets, listen, and it did happen finally in 2012. I was out of office by then coming in and saying, you know, the markets, hey, you know, Greece is safe or Italy is safe or Spain is safe. We're going to guarantee that. So it could have been done, but they didn't want to do that because this was sort of like the moral hazard. Okay. They'd been bad. We have to punish them. And the punishment was painful. So while in the beginning, actually, even for the first year, maybe a year and a half, we were very popular. We, we won the, the, the local elections a year later, resoundingly. But then when the European was coming back and saying, you need to do more, and you're doing more and more, and then I saw that there was, just, there was, there was so much pain in the citizen. They had taken a lot. I actually decided, I said, I called my former classmate and head of the opposition, Antonis Samaras. We were at, together in Amherst College. I said, Andonis, let's let's make a coalition government. Let's make this wider. Let's let's work together. Let's create a sense of a, a wider consensus rather than fighting about it. Actually, your your party was also responsible for this mess. This is a way to redeem yourself. A didn't want to do that because that he would most likely felt that we would lose out. So I, when I reached a point when we had demonstrations, we had almost violence. There were all kinds of rumors that ex-military people were organizing and so on. I said, okay, let's go to a referendum and let the people decide. And luckily, I had a strong negative reaction from a number of leaders in the European Union, not much support. That undermined my position. That was actually used, Ron, by the Brexiteers later on 
that example. And by Neil Farage has an example of, look, at Europe is not democratic. Why should we be in Europe? You know, we want to take control back in in, in, in UK. And uh, look what they did to Greece. So, yeah, I think it was it was not a very wise move from the leaders in Europe. Obviously, it didn't help Greece. I think if we did have the referendum, we would have uh, some form of resolution. I actually think we would have won it, but some form of resolution one way or another. And it would have been a democratic decision. We would have taken on responsibility of our decisions. Obviously, referenda are not always the way to solve problems. And sometimes when you ask people things that they don't really know about, but this was an issue which people understood. It was vital. It was a daily issue. They know that, you know, you, you have the euro, you don't. We do the program, we don't do the program. So it was quite clear what the dilemma was. This is a first for the Fernices podcast, a two-part series. Ha! You weren't expecting that. I know, pretty wild. But just an incredible conversation with a world leader about some of the challenges that he's facing. And of course, we have a world-class scholar on with us as well. How is Dr. Ron Heifetz going to make sense of some of what he's hearing? That's what we will explore next week in part two of this conversation. But you know, there were some really, really wonderful, beautiful phrases in the language that was used. A wider framework, the possibility to imagine a different context. For me, the practical wisdom is how do we create a wider framework? How do we provide others with a possibility to imagine? And how do we facilitate a different context? Now, those who listen weekly know that in recent episodes, I've been exploring context. And here is a world leader facing a very challenging context. Check in next week for part two of our conversation with Sin Cherry, Dr. Ron Heifetz, and George Papandreou. Next week, I think Sin is actually going to debrief with me. So that'll be kind of fun to hear her reflections on both of the conversations. But as always, thank you so much for checking in. Really appreciate you being here. Take care, everyone. Be well. Bye-bye. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and LinkedIn, so let's connect. Now, if you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. One final nod to our sponsors, the International Leadership Association and the Bowler College of Business at John Carroll University. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.